Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another episode of Straight Talking English. It is our Bonfire Night special coming to you hopefully the day after the 5th of November. My name is Catherine, I am your host. As ever you can tweet me on STR8 Talk English on Twitter. You can go to straighttalkingenglish.co.uk, you can click on books and buy my books i have got lots of them you can buy one on frankenstein which is actually the current series i am working through aside from these little breaks or you can click on support the project and drop me a wee donation while you're at it so i figured this was a good opportunity to have a little little go back in time to the old shakespeare's and talk a little bit about Let's say current affairs, not literally current affairs, because Shakespeare didn't really have many views on Brexit, I don't think, but he did have some views on the gunpowder plot, and this is what we're going to talk about today. There is a lot of links between the gunpowder plot and Macbeth. There are so many of them, and it would actually not be that surprising to see that, considering as the gunpowder plot occurred about three months before Macbeth was premiered, and I'm not quite sure what Shakespeare's turnaround time is, but I imagine it's pretty quick, to be honest. Macbeth is written and performed in early 1606. The gunpowder plot takes place 1605, November 5th, obviously, duh. But let's go back in time a little bit. Let's go back in time 35 years. In 1570, Elizabeth I is officially excommunicated by the Pope. That is not that surprising. She is a Protestant, she is Church of England. But the Pope, rather than sort of just putting up with it and being like, all right, you guys have got your own church, he officially steps in and excommunicates her. So that puts the Catholics of England in a bit of a pickle because technically you should always obey what your king tells you you know like the laws and stuff but the pope is saying the the monarch is evil so who are you gonna believe your spiritual head on this earth or your queen bit of an awkward one isn't it only 18 years later the spanish armada is launched by philip ii of spain in an attempt to take over england luckily for us not for the ships of the spanish armada a massive storm wrecks them before they can actually do that but because we have a resolutely catholic monarch setting out to destroy the uk as it stands and remake it in his own image we can kind of see this is a point where catholic phobia where the hatred of our catholic brethren takes a bit of a turning point so after that all of a sudden catholic mass is banned so i don't know if anyone listening i don't know what denomination you guys are whether you have faith whether you don't whatever but for catholics saying mass and being involved in the sacrament is incredibly important to your faith and that is just banned some rich people the aristocracy who were catholic sort of got around this and this is where you see in some stately homes what's called a priest hole which is the most fantastically named thing whereas if you had a private chapel uh you go through like a secret entrance to get there and if someone came knocking on your door 
you could just like put the priest in a secret cupboard and that's a priest hole. The other important thing is that fines are introduced for not attending Anglican services. It's kind of expected that everyone's going to be there every Sunday or you get a fine. Now, this is where Shakespeare comes in first of all. So William S is a bit of a mysterious beast. There's not that much evidence still around from his life. Most of what we get is from official legal documents, right? We've got his birth certificate, we've got the paperwork for when James I became his sponsor, we've got his death certificate. But we have the legal documents relating to his daughter Susanna and his son-in-law, her husband, having to pay these fines. So you've got to ask yourself, are they secret Catholics who are staying away from Anglican services because it's not their vibe? I mean, are they lazy? Do they just straight up not like waking up on a Sunday morning? Because trust me, that is annoying. But yeah, what's the story there? Could his daughter and son-in-law be secret Catholics? Could William Shakey have been a little bit sympathetic to the old Catholic cause? Fast forward in time a little bit more. We're up to 1603. Elizabeth I dies, sadly, at a ripe old age without really naming an heir until the last minute. There are two possible candidates, Arabella Stewart, and there's a really fascinating book about her life. Um, Search up Arabella Stewart biography, it's tremendous. Or there is James VI of Scotland. So, James VI, bit of a weird choice considering his mother was Mary Queen of Scots, who Elizabeth had executed. But he gets the job. He becomes James I of England. Now, in terms of religion, he's a bit of a weird dude. He's one of these guys who, much like some sections of Christians on the internet, perhaps the ultra-conservative end of the spectrum, really, really has read the Bible and just sort of made his own plan from it. As a young man, he was brought up in an, sort of an all-male environment. He wasn't brought up by his mum because for a lot of his childhood, his mum was in prison. His tutor was a fella called Knox, K-N-O-X, who is the most ridiculously strict Church of Scotland Protestant in the world. He wrote a pamphlet called The Monstrous Regiment of Women in which he said asking a woman to be your leader is like asking a blind man advice on how to paint. So he's grown up in this super super misogynistic household and he's got some weird ideas about divine right of kings. He's growing up believing that God has placed him on earth as the head of the Church of Scotland. He has God's blessing to be number one, and that's all there is to it. Alright, alright. However, this is where it gets weird. His missus, originally from Denmark, is a Catholic. She was baptised into the Church of England. Well, so, so it was Church of Scotland originally, but when uh, Scotland and England joined, we just say Church of England, the Anglican, it's interchangeable. She is baptised into the Church of England, but 
it's one of these like just sort of put your name on the certificate yeah so she's secretly having catholic services in her house so famous prime minister of the 19th century benjamin disraeli originally jewish um became baptized christian in later life and his totally not jewish surname that he picked was disraeli as in duh israel i he's not really fooling anyone there to be honest but it was a good political move to try and become pm so respect to him a lot of the catholics in the uk when a danish missus comes in secretly having her services catholics a lot of these catholics getting quite optimistic maybe things are going to change maybe things will get better for us maybe we'll live in a more tolerant world where everyone can enjoy their faith together nope not a chance there are two like low-key catholic plots that don't really go anywhere in 1603 it starts getting james the first properly paranoid he was already kind of a paranoid dude before he got with his wife he was hanging out in denmark studying with a bunch of these uh shall we say uh, original interpretations of the bible type scholars and learning all about demons demons are everywhere witches are everywhere when his ship nearly got wrecked on the way back from denmark with his missus he blamed it 100 percent on witches and it led to some quite horrific witch trials in scotland and these two catholic plots in 1603 send him off the paranoid end he's getting into tinfoil hat territory early 1604 he has the hampton court conference in which he declared his utter detestation utterly detesting catholics great great it's not looking up is it this made a lot of people angry not really surprising to be honest if uh, the monarchy says they detest you you're gonna be a little bit annoyed a chap called robert catesby c-a-t-e-s-b-y and three mates have a little meetup in the may and they're saying how about we try and get rid of this guy they hire a quote-unquote professional a guy who'd seen some military service in mainland europe called guy fawkes or guido fawkes depending on where you read and they kind of get a plan together what if we killed james and we replaced him with his little daughter elizabeth because she's just a kid she'll need a regent so we get the right person up in there and she'll grow up being fine with catholics and then we're all happy so this plan starts going guy fawkes gets a job at parliament as a caretaker his pseudonym by the way john johnson which i really love it's like mr innocent of the jacobean era meanwhile over the road because we're not talking like parliament as it is now where you've got whitehall you've got all the government offices it is kind of residential round there they rent a house with a big old cellar just across from parliament so the plan is slowly but surely fill up this cellar with barrels of gunpowder then on the 5th of november when parliament reopens the king will be in the building for sure and then you just blow it up by the time 
like the dust has settled metaphorically and literally everyone will have escaped to mainland europe and bob's your uncle we're all sorted everyone's happy but on the 26th of October, an anonymous letter was sent in to Lord Mount Eagle, and it went like this. My lord, out of the love I have for some of your friends, I want to make sure you're safe. Because of this, I would advise you to not attend this sitting of Parliament, because God and man have agreed to punish the wickedness of this time. Do not think this is a joke. Go to your estate in the country where you will be safe, because although there is no sign of the problem yet, this parliament will receive a terrible blow but they will not see who it is that hurts them this advice should not be ignored as it may do you some good and it can do you no harm because the danger will have passed as soon as you have burned this letter i hope god grants you the grace to make good use of it and he protects you so this chap lord mount eagle immediately tells someone about this i mean you've got like an anonymous letter saying get out of town and one of the plotters was his brother-in-law so we're kind of vibing it was that guy the cellars are searched like there's a massive like guard search of the whole place and the plotters are arrested we have a record of guy fawkes's confession in which he spills all the beans it's being reported in the third person because this is how the report goes he said he did not know, except for rumours and from the king's barge being made ready, the king was coming here on the first day of this parliament. But he did confess that his job was to blow the upper house when the king was there, and being asked what would have happened to the queen and her children if his plan had been carried out, he said that if they had been there, he would not have helped them. And being asked who would replace them if the king and all his heirs had been killed he said nobody asked that question and being asked when the king his heirs the nobles bishops judge and the leader of commons were all destroyed what kind of government would there be he answered that the people themselves would elect a head he confessed he'd known the other plotters two or three years but hadn't worked for them however about three months ago the house was hired as is already mentioned being asked what noblemen were advised to stay away from parliament at this time he answered that he wouldn't dare warn them for fear they should be discovered and asked why he would have been part of any act that might kill someone of his own religion he answered some would have been safe and they would have prayed for them oh brilliant great you know like oh well we'll pray for you if you happen to be messed up in this they did not know how they'd be able to get duke charles son of king james if he'd not also been blown up as they did not have any forces near london he confessed it was decided amongst them that on the same day this horrible act was carried out one of the group should kidnap the lady elizabeth um, the oldest daughter of king james and declare her queen and a statement made in her name which justified this step and that it was not her wish to interfere in the religion of the country oh so first link to macbeth is right here the idea of replacing a king by so-called loyal subjects duncan is gone and noble macbeth is replacing him james the first would be gone and his loyal subjects are putting in someone 
else. It's almost as if, like, Macbeth was a frontman for some nefarious force, then it'd be the same story. Link number two. Gory deaths. Bit of a content warning. This is really gross, by the way. We know at the end of the play, Macbeth is beheaded and his head is on a stick, which, okay, okay. I have yet to see a production of Macbeth where this doesn't make me laugh. Not because I find the idea of someone being beheaded hilarious, but because they tend to have like a mannequin head that's really cheap and rubbish. I'm like, this play has been great, but your props department sort it out. And Guy Fawkes and his mates also had a really gory end. The reason we know about this is because a much earlier person who was executed for treason, Edward Stafford III, Earl of Buckingham, had the wording of his sentence survived and indicates exactly how precise a gory end the authorities would want a treasonous person to have. Gross bit. He was to be, quote unquote, laid on a hurdle and so drawn to the place of execution and there be hanged, cut down alive, your members, genitals, to be cut off and cast into the fire, your bowels burnt before you, your head smitten off, and your body quartered and divided at the king's will, and God have mercy on your soul. Alright, alright, that is really gross. But the body parts, and the head, and like, the various limbs, would have been displayed on sticks, probably on Tower Bridge. So, it's easy to see that Macbeth actually died a traitor's death. Link number two, the shock and unease that permeates the play is what London was like. And I know I've told you guys about this before, but I was 16 when the 7-7 bombings happened. Uh, Those of you who don't know, some terrorists planted a bomb on a tube train, which was absolutely horrific. It killed many people. You can see the video that survivors took of trying to get out along the tracks. And in the day of 7-7, I was at home. I'd just finished my GCSE, so I was on, like, study leave, like, chilling, waiting for my A-levels. And it was terrifying. All of London just stopped. And at the time, my dad was working in Central and my sister was on a school trip. And we had no way of contacting them. Like, all phone lines were down. The police hadn't yet, like, confirmed who these terrorists were. There was a false report that they caught them, which resulted in an innocent South American man being shot. It was really scary. A few days after, I took my sister uptown because she was doing her work experience and it was empty and it was creepy and no one was talking to each other and it was just this sense of uncomfortable unease. It was just horrible. That was a modern reaction to terrorism. Our Jacobeans tended to get a little bit more, a little bit more punchy. You had vigilante groups being set up, like, we're going to find these guys and do them in. It's blatantly Catholics. You had people hiding in their homes at night. It was really scary. You had, so we've got the unnatural murder of Duncan, right? And that leads the horses in his stables to, like, eat themselves. 
you've got people running around like who did it what what's going on and it's playing on this atmosphere that shakespeare would have been part of living in southwark at the time that he would have felt we don't know what he was doing in those couple of days like was he in a gang was he chilling at home was he afraid like we don't know but he was there next link in order to squash this fear in order to take control of the situation james the first does a truly epic pr move and this guy i mean i'm not a massive fan of him really really good at his pr honest to god he releases something called the king's book which has all the documents from the case which is how i have all the documents from the case which i just read to you because they were deliberately released by james first all of these documents lead back to the whole witchcraft thing in the king's book he deliberately paints the plotters as being satanic rhetoric at the time is like if you like satan you're a witch so it's only a teeny tiny step removed from being like witches are behind this which we know witches are behind the plot of Macbeth. well kind of but would he have done anything if the witches hadn't given him prophecies who knows but the biggest link of all is this thing of equivocation equivocation is a big deal everyone in Macbeth equivocates and it's one of these like hot buzzwords that we would have now I guess something like fake news or Brexit or something like that like a buzzword that sums up a contemporary fear I guess like new normal as well right and the one at the time was equivocation so before Macbeth and I'm quoting from James Shapiro here that word had only appeared once in Shakespeare's plays around the turn of the century when Hamlet tells Horatio how absolute the knave is we must speak by the card or equivocation will undo us equivocation is used neutrally here hamlet is still saying that in navigating their way through this conversation they must choose their words carefully when shakespeare wrote hamlet equivocation was still a rare and scholarly term by the time he turned to macbeth in 1606 familiarity with it was normally universal and it was now taken pejoratively to mean concealing the truth by saying one thing but deceptively thinking another so just define equivocation here for a sec it means saying the quiet part and the loud part so if someone comes in and says oh why you haven't done the washing up and you say oh i did do the washing up but you think in your head two months ago or a lady comes in and says do you think i look beautiful in this dress and you say oh you look lovely and in your head you're thinking if you were a warthog but for a human you look terrible it's quiet part loud so it's not quite lying but it's not quite telling the truth this directly comes from the gunpowder plot and i'm basing quite a a lot of this on james shapiro's year of lear 1606 
attacks. He says the manhunt that followed the thwarted attack was accompanied by a search for documents which might shed light on the conspiracy. A month after the plot was discovered, a smoking gun, a quote-unquote treaties of equivocation instructing catholics on how to lie under oath was found in a suspect's lodgings the manuscript was the work of edward garnett or garnet a long-sought jesuit priest who was unfairly identified by the government as a mastermind of the plot and whose decapitated head would soon be displayed on london bridge where playgoers going to and from the globe theater would see it the authorities were especially horrified by one of the techniques recommended by garnet which came to be known as mental reservation where your thoughts and ideas were at odds so the person with whom you were speaking could have no idea that this was the case this sort of equivocation meant saying, for example, I didn't see Father Gerard, while finishing a sentence in your head with the words, hide himself upstairs in the attic. It wasn't a lie exactly if you believe that God knew your thoughts, even if the person questioning you didn't. Yet if this was a lie, what was? A contemporary succinctly described how this doctrine, once widespread, would lead to chaos. The Commonwealth cannot possibly stand if this wicked doctrine be not beaten down and suppressed, for if it once takes root in the hearts of people, in a short time there will be no faith, no trust, and all civil societies will break and be dissolved. It's difficult to read this sort of despairing Jacobean vision and not think of Scotland under Macbeth, a nightmare world where words belie intentions and honest exchange is no longer possible. It's in large part through equivocation that Shakespeare found a way of registering the seismic shock of the gunpowder plot. So, there is one bit in the play where equivocation is explicitly addressed it comes up a couple more times as well and i'll talk about those in a moment but the bit where it's explicitly addressed is in the porter scene where the drunk doorman the drunk security guy has his little ramble about equivocation now this is weird right so in every tragedy there's supposed to be funny bits right to break up the mood think about romeo and juliet and mercutio making like naughty jokes yeah the porter's bit is supposed to be ad-libbed and the porter just like makes up some topical comedy while pretending to be a drunk man ha 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 but the version that's written down is specifically about equivocation so it's reasonable to assume that this is quite similar to what would actually have been performed and the clip I'm going to show you, the clip I'm not going to show you anything, this is an audio medium. The clip I'm going to play you is David Tennant being the porter. So I have a massive crush on David Tennant. I'm going to be open about this. And David, if you're listening, I will tweet you my number. I know you're married and have five children, but I'm sure it's okay. And I wanted to include David Tennant just because I wanted to tell you about a weird grudge I still have. <laughs> so um, when you break up with someone you tend to not keep your possessions right like if you have a breakup you split the possessions so when i broke up with my ex-boyfriend i feel like he got the better end of a deal or you can judge for yourselves right i kept the television and 250 quid and a pair of converse that's all right it's all right he got my very expensive coffee machine which i still miss to this day it was a proper espresso machine and he got the tickets right to see David Tennant in a play called Don Juan in Soho in which David Tennant appears naked for a scene. 
And I'm like, why would he want to keep those tickets? What interest would he have in seeing Dave Tennant naked? Whereas I have a vested interest <laughs> in seeing that, owing to my crush on the very famous Scottish actor. So, enjoy this reading, in which I'm like 90% sure he had his clothes on for this one. Have a little listen, and then we're going to talk about it. Mmm! Oh! 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 Oh, here's a knocking indeed. Oh. <sighs> if a man were poor of Hellgate, he should have old turning a key. Knock, knock, knock. Who's there in the name of Jersey, Bob? Here's a farmer that hanged himself on the expectation of plenty. Oh, come in, time. Have napkins now about you here, you'll sweat for it. <laughs> knock, knock. Who's there in the other devil's name? Faith, here's an equivocator. I could swear in both the scales against either scale who committed treason enough, for God's sake, yet could not equivocate to heaven. Ha ha! Ho ho ho! Come in, equivocate. No, no, no! Here's an English tailor come hither for stealing out of the French hills, huh? Oh, come in, tailor! Here you may roast your goose. <laughs> no, no, never a quiet while you! Oh, but this place is too cold for hell. I'll double porter it no further. I had thought to have let in some of all professions that go to Primrose Way at the everlasting bonfire. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. So, in there, if you caught it, the porter is literally talking about Garnet and his trial. Among the imagined guests he thinks are outside, you have an equivocator who is Garnet and a quote-unquote farmer who hanged himself. Now, a farmer, yeah, yeah, literally a guy that's got a farm, you know, but farmer is one of Garnet's pseudonyms. So this farmer set himself up to be hanged just like Garnet. There's references to relics from Garnet's execution where he starts talking about napkins. Catholic spectators at executions might dip a hanky in the blood so it become a relic of a martyr. He talks about a tailor as well, which refers to a tailor who was arrested and interrogated in 1606 for being in possession of another relic called Garnet's straw, which is a stalk of grain onto which Garnet's blood apparently splashed an image of his face like the Turin shroud, right? So that Porter's speech is literally just about Garnet's trial and he imagines it's Garnet outside. All right, how much more of a clear link do you want? But there are loads of other references to the gunpowder plot in Macbeth. You get a lot of words like blow, vault, train. And this violent vocabulary of destruction. We've got secret plotting, usurpation, 
regicide. All of these things are like literally things the audience are thinking about. But like everything, there's a scholarly debate. Some people think it offers like supporting James's absolutism and anti-Catholic views. Yeah, I mean, James I was sponsoring Shakespeare at this time, so that makes sense. But other people think it might have a subtle critique of the monarchy. So talking about legitimate versus illegitimate forms of violence. So, like, the violence against Macbeth is justified, but Macbeth's violence is not. The violence of the gunpowder plotters is justified. Maybe them being hanged, drawn and quartered is not. Our version of Macbeth dates from 1623. So, this might have been added in later. My little caveat. Let's talk about some more equivocation, though. Maybe the most important bit of equivocation is between Macbeth and Banquo and the witches, the first one. All their prophecies are equivocation. King hereafter, but they don't tell him he has to kill Duncan. They tell Banquo, thou shalt get kings, though thou be none, but they don't tell him he won't actually see it because he'll be dead. Awkward. We have to decide, basically, is that mental reservation on part of the characters? Are they having this terrifying technique of quiet part and loud part? Or are they being honest? He goes back to see them, of course, when he says, none of woman born shall harm Macbeth. So he's, like, reassured by that. And he doesn't realise the equivocation. So, like, none of woman born shall harm Macbeth dot 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 except for Macduff who was born by c-section he'll never be vanquished till great Burnham Wood comes to Dunsinane dot 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 but that could also count as people holding tree branches and once he's fighting Macduff and he realizes it's actually the equivocation of the situation which has led him to dying he says be these juggling fiends no more believe that shall palter with us in a double sense that keep the word of promise to our ear and break it to our hope he's literally saying equivocators are bad like those catholics yeah I should not have listened to equivocators like Catholics. Unlike Shakespeare's Off the Tragic Heroes, Macbeth doesn't have a deny, a dying self-revealing speech. The only things we get from him in reflection are insights into equivocation. It's almost like he's a cardboard cutout set to just give us this moral of equivocation is bad. So there you go. There you go. That is our links between the gunpowder plot of 1605 and the magnificent work of drama and literature that is Macbeth. All hail Macbeth, king hereafter, noble Macbeth, unseen Tim from something to chaps, knave to chaps, I think. I really should remember that line. It's very bad, isn't it? Right? Thank you very, very much. I am on Twitter, SCR8 Talk English. I am Catherine, your host as ever, straighttalkingenglish.co.uk. Click on books, buy my books. Click on support the projects, drop me a donation. And we will be back next week to talk about alchemists and the science of Frankenstein part two. Have a lovely and safe week out there with your fireworks, guys. Keep warm, keep safe. I'll speak to you soon. Mm-hmm.